Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. All the people that were working for Main Man were unusual. We were loud, ugly Americans, basically. Main Man, an interesting story, a very entertaining story, a very long, wonderful adventure. Hello and welcome. This is episode 48 in our series exploring the history of Main Man, the management rights company which was renowned in the 70s for transforming the business of rock and roll. The Main Man philosophy was to provide financial support that enabled their artists to fully explore their creative freedom while pioneering outrageous and often controversial promotions and marketing techniques that became synonymous with the decadence, extravagances and indulgences that are now part of rock folklore. I remember the, the single going up the charts and going, whoa, you know, it's going. And what a difference it made when we went grocery shopping or clothes shopping in Beckenham. Before, we'd been kind of struggling money-wise. Now, when we went in to pay for things, people wouldn't let us pay. They'd go, no, no, we saw you on, you know. It just made such a difference. We, you'd go out and you didn't spend any money and came back with all these things. It was like, hey, this is really cool. <laughs> Main Man worked with a diverse range of clients that included Lou Reed, Amanda Lear, Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Mott the Hoople, Dana Gillespie, Mick Ralphs, David Bowie, Marianne Faithful, and Iggy Pop. The biggest positive influence on us here were, were really the Mark Boland records that were being made at the time. Those were, those were fine records. It was like he mated uh, Joni Mitchell and Chuck Berry. As we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the release of David Bowie's fourth album, Hunky Dory, in December 1971, Main Man founder Tony DeFries recalls the conception and creation of the album's cover, which was a groundbreaking work of art that was then followed by an even more iconic image for the Ziggy Stardust album six months later, based on the same principle of colour-enhancing an original black-and-white photograph. Hunky Dory was a striking cover, unique in many ways... First of all, because it represented an artist as a performer who was clearly a boy and, however, put him in the guise of a famous film star who was a girl. So in many ways, people have referred to it as the Lauren McCall cover, the Greta Garbo cover, the Marlene Dietrich cover... Of course, it was a Bowie cover. Much of the picture itself was inspired by a triptych of Andy Warhol, who had a very similar way of dealing with photographs. He'd take them and they'd colorize them and essentially redesign them. He'd done that for uh, Marlene Dietrich, an early Marlene Dietrich picture, and that was in a book of photographs that David had and he showed that to Brian and then he also showed Brian some of the Lauren McCall era pictures that he was also very taken with so in some ways David was responsible for inspiring that look but ultimately Brian arranged and took a marvellous photograph on Gidori. RCA when they first released the album tried various promotional approaches to making runs where the album had nothing on the front cover but the picture itself framed in a black border. So you had something that a reviewer and more importantly a fan could hold and all they were looking at was a picture, a 
beautifully coloured, very glamorous and very enticing picture of this creature, knowing, because there was nothing on the sleeve, to tell them whether it was a boy or a girl and what it was all about. So it's a mystery, an enigma, wrapped up in a mystery and got lots of attention, especially from the music critics and writers who like to write about the unusual. It was very exotic. Now that in the UK was laminated so that it had a high gloss effect, probably just one time. But at the US release, they made this marvellous cover as a standalone and put the information as a sticker on the shrink wrap. So this way, when you took the shrink wrap off of the album, you had this beautiful, untouched, of course, but not a photograph, but a picture, an actual piece of art. Brian also was the one who came up with the outrageous Tutankhamun idea, but you can't always get it right. And he wasn't looking at it through the same lens as I was, literally speaking. He was simply a photographer looking for a great picture, not a photographer thinking about the dynamics of an album cover that would possibly become, as it did become, tens of millions of the same picture. I mean, David ultimately sold over 100 million albums, which means a hell of a lot of them are Hunky Dory albums. Imagine if Hunky Dory had been David in Tutankhamun pose, and there were millions and millions of those out there. That's not something you want hanging on your wall for the rest of your life. (laughs) And the fact that that was a boy, a man, someone who subsequently made that statement about being gay. He certainly had appeared wearing a dress on the cover of Man Who Sold the World, and he was in his early 71 promotional trip he was still operating as clearly someone in the what we now call transgender moment who was willing to be all boy or all girl as the situation demanded that was the source of a great deal of publicity and commentary because nobody else was doing that in that way in the rock and roll space or the pop space so for david it became a useful cover for him to essentially say i'm not certain of whether i'm a boy or a girl but i am certain of being a person and a person can have more than one identity that was a key factor for david in moving forward to say I can have more than one identity. And so he could pick an identity and he could choose to be that identity, express it in song, express it in images, express it on stage. All this led to Starman and Ziggy Stardust, ultimately. So in many ways, this was a template and a blueprint for going on stage in 1972 with a band that were really now performing Ziggy Stardust and Spiders from Mars in front of audiences. And the net result was, in the UK, where we first did those concerts, audiences were completely persuaded that this was something new and different. They hadn't seen it before. 
and it got a lot of attention and ultimately propelled David's career forward where it was possible to go and start working in the US, but not immediately. He didn't have that much of a following in the US to begin with, so 71 was a year of experiment, rehearsal, trial and error. And 50 years later, you can see all that work, all that effort, all those high points and low points ended up with David becoming one of the most successful rock stars and musical influences. And that is where we are today. So Hunky Dory started life as obviously a black and white or monochrome picture of David in that particular jacket with that particular hairdo staged and photographed by Brian Ward did a marvellous job and then handed off to George Underwood David's longtime friend who was a designer and illustrator and worked with a colourist also an illustrator called Terry Pasta at a design studio called Main Artery so Main Artery took the project of taking the black and white picture and turning it into, and it was probably a sepia-toned picture to begin with, turning it into this marvellous piece of colourised artistic design, which became, and still is, a very much talked-about album cover. The same team worked the same magic, same photographer, same designer, same colourist, for the Ziggy Stardust album, which again started out as a black and white album in a real street, in a real phone box, and then had all these elements added to it so that it became a... The rain was actually real in the picture. But all the elements that were added to it, as well as the elements that were in the original picture, became the subject of enormous amounts of attention, vast amounts of description and ultimately an enormous following to this alien representation of David as Ziggy Stardust. Again, all of this was in many ways crystallised the moment that David performed Starman on BBC in 1972 and flung his arm around Mick Ronson and pulled him close so they could sing that refrain for Starman, which is, of course, over the rainbow, into the microphone in front of a completely enchanted audience, (laughs) who many of whom were still pre-teenagers, and remember it as the moment that they discovered rock and roll. They discovered Ziggy. As a result of doing that and working through the Ziggy persona with all those hunky-dory songs and some more Ziggy songs, we were able, in 1972, after a lot of rehearsals in 1971, to go on the road with David and the Spiders from Mars, starting in January or February of 1972, 
and do an entire string of live performances in the UK. And by the time we'd finished, David was famous. Not yet in America, but certainly in the UK, he had reached a point at which it was obvious he was going to have an enormous impact. The US was still an uncharted territory. I decided that we shouldn't go and perform in the US until David had a following. And I tasked RCA with the very, very unlikely job of making David a high-priority, must-see act in the US before he went and did a single live performance. Took a lot of persuasion, there was a lot of discussion, there was a lot of pushback, but quite a few of the RCA folk, especially Dennis Katz and his team, Bob Ring and others, who were already huge Bowie fans, saw the possibility that if you could bring David to America as though he were the Beatles, an act that was so popular in their home country that they didn't need to be a support act, that they could actually come to America. And of course the Beatles, when they came to America, were already mobbed and famous and hugely popular, even though they'd never performed in America. We wanted David to have that same impact. And we did achieve it. It took a lot of work on the part of us and on the part of RCA, but it paid off very well at the end of the day. Now, one of the features that enabled us to do this unheard of feat of taking an unknown UK performer, singer, songwriter, and making him a headliner in the US from a standing start was Mick Rock. And Mick Rock, sad to say, recently passed away and we should just pause here for a moment to give Mick the tribute well deserved of being one of the most important rock star a, a distinct and intended pun a rock star photographer one of many there were many other photographers that would but if you think of Mick Rock particularly, a rock story emerges where he starts taking, it starts doing photography, much the way Ridley Scott did, as something chosen for a course, a university course, to get some form of degree. Photography was an attractive option for Mick, an attractive option for Ridley Scott. Ridley went on to become, as well as becoming my, one of my photographers later, a famous and very successful film director. Mick went on to become a famous and very successful rock photographer, a rock star. Now, he wasn't alone. There were many rock star photographers. Some of them were earlier than Mick. You have uh, folks like Annie Lebovitz, who has had an enormously long and prolific career taking photographs of everybody, not just rock stars, but many others. You have, of course, someone like Gerard Mankiewicz, and Gerard, of course, took pictures for us of Dana. 
but he also took pictures of many, many other people. I think the Stones and others included. And when you look at that cast of characters, when you say, who were the photographers who made a difference? You can say Terry O'Neill is amongst that group. He did pictures for us of Dana. He did pictures of Faye Dunaway, who he was also with for a while and who he introduced me to later. He did pictures of Raquel Welsh. Again, he had a liaison with Raquel and he introduced her to us in the 70s. You've got Mick Rock beginning his photographic career with Pink Floyd, particularly with Sid Barrett, who was the founder of Pink Floyd, and then ultimately became, again, an early casualty to addiction and overdose, but did leave behind this legacy of Pink Floyd. And Mick had a substantial amount of pictorial coverage of Sid when he was still alive and functioning. You've also got photographers like Don Silverstein, who took those marvellous Jimi Hendrix pictures that featured on Electric Ladyland. And it was Don who ultimately introduced me to Brian Duffy, David Bailey, and many other photographers who became members of what we now call the Association of Photographers, the AOP. And that was a very long list, too long for me to recite here. But Brian Duffy then took some marvellous pictures of David. And of course, they included the iconic Aladdin Sane cover. Terry O'Neill worked for us, did pictures of Dana, for example. And pictures of David and Angela together. And Terry actually photographed everybody at the time who was important or famous... Sean Connery, for example, politicians, some of the royals, a very large group of people. This is also a tribute because um, he did some marvellous work when he was alive. Now, Mick Rock is in a particular category for us because he was given an exclusive opportunity to work with Main Man that began when he first met and took pictures of David at Haddon Hall. This was before the famous and infamous picture that he took later of David going down on Ronson's guitar. Before that, earlier in 1972, he'd been asked to do a piece for Rolling Stone as the photographer on Bowie and was invited by David to come to Haddon Hall and take pictures in those surroundings. And after David saw the pictures, he said to me and to Mick that these were the first pictures of himself that he felt reflected what he saw in himself. Mick captured the Bowie that Bowie saw in a way that other people hadn't. And Mick Rock was given full access to David and any other artists that we represented and the understanding was that he would have this exclusive access provided all the pictures that he took were available to us for whatever we 
sought to use them for publicity or promotion or album covers, etc., that whatever pictures he took that he used for himself, we could also have access to. At that point in time, and carrying on from there, the governing law for copyright and photographers was that the person who pays for the film or the entity that pays for the film and the processing or related costs, but essentially who pays the cost of filming, owns the copyright in the results. In Mick's case, we said, provided we can approve, use and access, so in other words, if there are photographs that we don't want you to use, you won't use them, or if there are photographs that we want to use and we don't want you to reproduce for any other purpose, they'll be ours. Outside of those, you can have free reign to use those pictures for any purpose. And that allowed Mick to create and produce many books that included photographs not just of David, but of Lou, of Mott the Hoople, of Iggy Pop, of Dana, of Wayne County, and other artists that we worked with. And it also gave him an entree into taking photographs of everybody else because he was now well-known, well-received, and his photographs were being seen and published. And he carried on working with David on different ventures until quite recently. So that in that instance, you had a situation where Mick was paid for, his travel expenses were paid, his film expenses and processing expenses were paid, and the result was that we got to have a greater degree of control over David's image, which was an important tool in getting him a larger fan base. It sounds counterproductive to say that if you restrict access to images of a pop star or a rock star, that it will actually become a plus. But the movie studios had established in the 30s and 40s and 50s that this is exactly true, that if you control the image and you only allow your pictures of movie stars to be seen, they will determine what the public see as the image of that particular performer. And this works in many different ways for promotion, for interest, for publicity and so on. And so this became a method that enabled us to control many aspects of the images of different artists, but especially David, that we worked with. And at the same time, to have access to that material for promotional purposes, publicity, etc., a very successful coupling and we repeated it in some cases with Brian Duffy who also took some remarkable pictures primarily for our purposes of David and Brian took pictures again of many other famous faces, important people during his career. Yoko is one of the people that I consider to be a rock photographer, but she was also an artist and a performance artist. In working with John Lennon, but with also many others, 
she has made some distinct contribution to rock images and artwork in the same era of the 70s that we're talking about. Another important photographer, also connected to the Beatles, but let's say to the other Beatle, Paul McCartney, was Linda McCartney, originally Linda Eastman. Her father was um, Lee Eastman, her brother was John Eastman. They had a law firm called Eastman and Eastman, believe it or not. <laughs> John Eastman was sometimes a friend, sometimes not a friend of mine. Became briefly an attorney for David when we party company. Uh, tried to negotiate a buyout from me unsuccessfully in the 80s, I think. But Linda and Paul became romantically attached, just like John and Yoko, and then began to work together professionally and never quite sure which came first, whether the romance came first or whether the professional, but clearly there was a romantic connection and a professional connection. And in many ways, as bystanders, Linda and Yoko were a large factor in influencing John and Paul to part company, which meant the breakup of the Beatles. So they all feature in this same story. But Linda also took pictures of Hendrix and many other rock and roll performers and many other subjects. Again, like Annie Lebovitz, she took a broader view of subjects than just those limited to rock and roll. And that was true for a lot of these photographers. They had a, a broad brush. But as I say, they were extremely influential in the development of rock and roll and music and art in this time frame. They created images that have continued to be used and are still very, very important to identify as a history and a background to the entire era of music in the 60s, the 70s and the 80s. And they were both, in fact, this entire cast of characters that I've mentioned were involved in that progression. Main Man founder Tony DeFries explaining the importance and influence of the cover art for David Bowie's iconic Hungry Dory album. And all those visual references that Tony described, including Brian Ward's original King Tut photograph of David, are available on the Main Man label website, along with other great pieces of memorabilia from this period in rock history that are part of an ever-growing archive of Main Man documents, including articles, telexes, letters and production notes, a lot of them never seen before, that we're adding to the Main Man label website each week. It's a great record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.